Welcome to Behind the Bullseye. This podcast is about navigating challenges and communicating effectively during difficult situations when your organization's credibility and reputation, even its very future, are on the line. Few of us welcome a trial by fire, but here you can learn from those who have communicated when the stakes are highest. Hear from those who've done it the right way and from those who did it the wrong way. These are practitioners who've indeed been behind the bullseye. We trust that their insights, tips, and counsel will help you prepare now for that day we hope we avoid when you yourself are behind the bullseye. On our podcast today, we've got Angie Howard, who is a seasoned veteran indeed. I'm putting this politely here. Uh, of of the nuclear energy industry, and I have known Angie a long, long time, and she has been my boss, she has been my mentor, she has been my gadfly, and thankfully today, I think I can call her my friend. Absolutely. And and it has just been a wonderful experience, and and I think what we're since this is a podcast about crisis communications. Angie's basically seen it all over many years in executive leadership with the nuclear energy industry. And we'd like to hear from you, your views on what makes a competent program for crisis communications in general, and particularly from your experience in the nuclear energy industry, which has a considerable legacy uh, in emergency preparedness. What do you think that legacy is? Well, yes, it does, and I think the uh, nuclear industry has, has been a leader in this area, but from an overall standpoint, I like to think of crisis communications as the three Ps, plan, prepare, and practice. Hopefully, you won't have to produce a crisis communications program <laughs> in the real, but plan, practice, and uh, prepare and practice. But truly, from a standpoint of uh of industry, I think we have seen the advent of crisis communications through events that have occurred over the last 40 to 50 years. And it's not just in industrial applications, but it's been in other applications as well. We can all think back to the Johnson & Johnson and the Tylenol issue from, from many, many years ago. But one of the things that is so important is how you think about how you communicate with your constituency in a time of of general importance, but also in a time of urgency. Indeed. So what is it that you think non-nuclear industries can learn from nuclear energy industry? Well, well, first of all, I think that non-nuclear industries are industries that have uh, implications within their communities need to learn how they deal with their community, how they become a part of their community. They're not just there to produce a product and go home every evening. They have to become a part of their community and and be engaged. I've always said you you can't go introduce yourself and I always said it from the nuclear industry standpoint to our, to our people in the plant. I said, you can't go out and introduce yourself to the local mayor or the county commissioner and say, hello, I'm the plant manager of XYZ plant. And by the way, we're having an emergency. You've got to have an ongoing communications about what your plant is, what your organization does, how you interface with the community and be open and transparent.
I'm really glad that you walked me through that again. I've heard that from you many times, and that's basically been a guiding principle for, for many years for me personally. So I think that's a great thing to share. Well, one of the things that the company that I worked with early on in the nuclear industry did have a very strong community orientation. And we made it a point, regardless of the type of facility or just the fact that we were producing electricity, that we made it a point to be within in the community and talk about our product and talk about what we were doing and get the community's feedback uh, so that we understood what our customers were looking for. And from that point, uh, and we actually even had programs that helped them learn how to use electricity and use electricity more efficiently and, and talk about all of those aspects. And then as the environmental movement came along and, and people were more interested in the environment or concerns about nuclear generation came along and there was local opposition, we made a very strong point of having our people available to be in the community talking with constituents. And that was not just the public relations office, but that was the engineers, it was the operators, it was the plant managers, and the leadership of the company. Uh, terrific advice. Uh, talk a little bit, if we will, Angie, about the team that's required to respond credibly in, in a crisis. Because, of course, it's not a single individual. How do you get that teamwork? How do you make it gel so that it works when you do have a crisis? Well, to me, so much of everything we do reverts back to the relationships that you have. And I've talked a little bit about developing relationships within the community, but also is to develop the relationships with your internal team. You have to be working together on a daily basis so that you have a trust in each other, you have respect for each other, you have respect for the roles that people play and that they're assigned in their day-to-day, but also that they're assigned in a crisis situation, be it an ice storm, if you're going through a, or a hurricane, or be it a, an incident at a, at a power plant. So have, developing those relationships and really being confident in how you work together. And that, again, comes back to my three Ps. You plan, you, you prepare for it, you identify the roles, and you practice it. Uh, you do get together and you practice. One of the things I caution, though, is because it's very easy to, to plan and identify roles, but in a true emergency, the media is going to want to hear from the top person in that organization. And you, you need to make that person available, and you need to have that person comfortable enough with who they are and knowledgeable enough of, of what is going on that they are able to, to speak with a level of, of confidence so that the public or the media uh, understands and, and garners that confidence and trust, that they have confidence in that you know what you're doing and that you're handling it in the best way possible. Oh, absolutely. I wonder if you could talk about how women may respond differently in a leadership role during a crisis. Because you you did that a long time ago when there were, yes, I did. There were almost no women. But yes. talk about yes. that um, and how things may have changed over time. Well, I, 
you know, things go back to research. And uh, if you do early research and still do research today, generally in a time of crisis and concern, and particularly if there's a potential for impact on the public, people tend to believe a woman. They feel like there's a, there's a more of a nurturing, a more of a caring aspect. I personally think that men are just as caring, but it's the way they come across, perhaps. It's the way they perhaps can relate to mothers who are concerned about their children or have questions about environmental impacts that um, mothers and, and women can have a bit more credibility. But what it really comes down to is is the confidence level, the sincerity and not coming across as arrogant, and I know it all, and don't bother me with asking questions because I've got my job to go do. So uh, I think women uh, do have perhaps more of that, uh, those traits of, of being uh, caring, of, of listening, and, and communicating on a, a level that is not trying to be arrogant or know-it-all. Indeed, and you, you have uh, told me about some of your early days serving as a spokesperson when some of the today's plants were like going through licensing and that type of thing. Yeah. But, mm-hmm. uh, talk about, if you will, not only do you have to be empathetic, um, but just talk about technical competence. Well, we have wonderfully competent and technical people in, in this industry, uh, men and women, and, and many, many more women in the industry. Uh, so, Technical competence is important throughout the roles, and I think it's very important even at the um, the communications level to be able to understand what it is that you are speaking about. Uh, again, uh, maybe that was my personality, but if I understood the technical background, then I was confident in what I was saying, and I would appear confident. I would sound confident. I would appear confident, uh, be it radio or, or, or television or in front of a, a town hall meeting. So again, being confident comes from knowledge, knowledge and experience. Uh, that's just a great to, uh, point. I mean, you, I mean, considering as a spokesperson in a crisis, crisis poise is so important, and that that confidence in the technology gives you that. Yes, it does. It does. I'll tell you a funny story. Um, in the uh, the seventies, there were people that didn't like nuclear energy, and some of that was on co- on college campuses. And I did a lot of the speaking engagements on our plans and and what we were doing and and how things operated. And I was speaking at a in a fairly large lecture room on a college campus that was fairly liberal college campus. And at the time uh, I was speaking, two people came out and stood next to me in the death shrouds <laughs> with their sickles, uh, representing death. And I just sort of looked at them and said, you know, that's a really nice outfit. <laughs> and the crowd switched immediately to me. They booed them. They booed them off the stage <laughs> because I didn't get all upset. I didn't get flustered. Uh, now, I can't tell you what I was feeling like on the inside, but on the outside. <laughs> but uh, the thought being is that you've got to be able to communicate and communicate with that poise and confidence. But that also does not replace the importance of transparency, of getting information out 
quickly. Um, and it's, it's a fine line in a crisis situation of how quickly you need to get information out and how much you need to know about what it is you're saying, of course, and what you're giving out. And so you, you don't want to wait till you know all the facts because you've got to communicate. But you also don't want to, to communicate if things are not uh, as bad as, as they might seem. You've got to get some kinds of information. And that's why it's so important that the team comes together very quickly and assesses the situation. And it doesn't hurt to say, we don't know this much yet, but we will be back to you when we do. And you give them that confidence that you will communicate mm-hmm. with them mm-hmm. or that you will continually update them. Well, can you give me uh, some examples of either some experience you had or uh, an event that you're aware of that you thought was handled particularly well? Yeah, there's there's so many that I think that we we have done or I've I've seen others uh, do particularly well, uh, be it um, situations in 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 hurricanes uh, where you've got you know, immediately trying to get information out. There's been so much hurricane planning uh, that has particularly taken place with utilities along on the on East Coast and, and Gulf states. I think they've done, in many cases, very good job. I also think that, uh, you know, you we still see situations, unfortunately, where, you know, you'll have a, a chemical spill and the company doesn't even know what chemicals they have. They don't even know what chemicals went into the water or into the ground, and and they just sort of fail open by by not being able to answer the questions, and then the media starts to feed. It becomes a frenzy. So I, again, I, I think there's so many uh, opportunities that you have where things have have gone well because the company was prepared, was willing to speak, was willing to be there twenty four seven and update whenever there was information available. So I think all of those examples are the areas that are, are just very necessary. Yeah, openness and honesty buys you a mm-hmm. lot. Yes, yes. Talk a little bit, if you will, about we, we've made some glancing references to some of these situations that are really emotionally charged. And you've got to get information across when fears and, and emotions are, are sort of are, are interfering with your ability to just to communicate basic information. How do you handle a, a, an emotionally charged situation? I think oftentimes, uh, again, keeping your cool, uh, letting the person that's expressing that emotion or maybe a number of people expressing that emotion, let them speak, let them have their moment, but then assert yourself to say, but let me straighten that out or let me give you the correct information. It's not that you're wrong. You've gotten bad information. You know, there's one thing you don't attack because they're attacking you and they're not really attacking you personally they really are attacking the situation and it's their emotions that are coming out. Mm-hmm. And so if you can um, practice that um, to the point of being able to separate yourself and stay calm, 
the situation sort of eases off, eases back. And then you start relaying information quietly, correctly. Visual aids are always good because it gives something people something to look at. It gives the media something to see. If you can provide uh, the tools that you need, as well as the calmness and, and the correct and honest information, and be honest when you say, I don't have that information. I'll get it as soon as I can, but I don't have it yet. It's great guidance, Angie. I want to, I know you, you've done a, a lot of work. I mean, we've talked about legacies here, uh, legacy of the nuclear energy industry. And the other thing I want to get into a little bit about is your own legacy, which you are doing work to convey to the <laughs> next generation of, yeah, yeah. of, of rising leaders uh, among women in, in the industry. And, and you told me a little bit about the program you're doing with the Women in Nuclear Organization, the, me, my voice, my tribe, which is just sounds absolutely terrific. But how would you how do you counsel rising leaders and how to get up to school in, in, uh, in, in their ability to manage a crisis and do all those things you've been talking about? Stay poised, right. be knowledgeable, so on and so forth. <laughs> well, it's uh, it's something that I feel very passionate about and strong about. Um, our organizations need to look like our communities. I mean, and, and the whole aspect of diversity, uh, equality, inclusion is one that's, that's very, very important. And uh, some years ago, over 20 years ago, we started saying we, we need more women, technical women. We need the STEM programs that get women taking these uh, science and technology and engineering classes, and we need women in our industry. I'm a firm believer, and I think many in our industries today also have become firm believers, that a diverse leadership team is a better leadership team. It brings different thoughts, processes, and different um, uh, ways of working through problems to a team, so you you get a, a better result. There's not a group think type of thing. So, but it's important to um, to get people comfortable in their own organization, uh, in their own self. Uh, nuclear industry. A lot of the early leaders and still some of our new leaders today are coming out of the nuclear navy, where it's been a very white male dominated industry. And there were things that they wanted to do, very strict, uh, which is very, very important. Safety is absolute utmost. Uh, And yet um, getting women comfortable being a part of that community, realizing that they don't have to be like the male manager. They can be their own authentic self. But getting them comfortable being their own authentic self, understanding who they are, and what they bring to the table, and then how they use that, their strengths, their voice, if you will, uh, in um, a one-on-one meeting, leading a uh, committee meeting, or as we're seeing today, more and more chief nuclear officers being women, uh, being elected to that position. And so it's, it's, it's wonderful. And then they have the ability to pay that forward 
have a tribe, have people that they work with. Have a with, tribe, yeah. Uh, to, uh, so that they can um, share information. I mean, when, when I was starting in this industry, I was usually the only woman in a conference. And, you know, there are a whole lot of other men that are sitting there. And I would ask a question. I would make a comment. And people would turn around and stare at me. <laughs> like, where did that come from? But my passion is is getting women and, and young engineers uh, as well that give us the ability to bring a diverse group of people into the organization, listen to them, promote and move them forward so that they can succeed. And that's what you really, we need these plants and our other industrial complexes operate a long time. And we need a flow of competent people to lead the organizations over a period of generations, uh, not just a a one-size workforce. Absolutely. And and so much of what you say, I think, we, we talk about poise, knowledge, all of those things that require a competent crisis response. So many of those things you talk about also apply there. And, and Yes. And obviously, you know, inculcating those in your day-to-day uh, skills translates. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. And, and again, it comes back to also the, developing the relationships with your teammates. You know, being an active member, uh, being a leader, developing the confidence in each other so that you know that if you do have a crisis, you're going to work well together. You're going to know who's, who's most comfortable doing what, and, and your su- likelihood of success is much greater. Indeed. Well, we started this, this interview talking about legacy, and I think we are ending it also talking about legacy, because paying it forward makes such a difference in terms of establishing competent crisis communication skills should the unspeakable happen. Yes. And I think that's well, And one of the things, too, is that it's not static. Our world changes. Our situations change. When I started doing crisis communications, we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have social media. <laughs> we had print journalists and television journalists and radio journalists, but we didn't have the Internet and the Twitter and the Instagram and all of those things that are there today. So if we don't continually learn the tools that are out there, the tools that people will use and how to feed that, you won't be relevant. And so, again, it's not just a matter of, of, of what works yesterday. It's what's going to work tomorrow and, and where the world is going to be. And both traditional media and social media are very, very critical aspects of the new world. And it's, it's a challenge to stay on, on top of it, but um, that's what we have to do. Well, I think to conclude, I think we can say that uh, we've got our marching orders to do just that, to have to keep on top of it moving forward. Continually learning. <laughs> yeah, but Angie, this is terrific. Any excuse I have to reconnect I'll relish that. and uh, I hope so, and I hope that your listeners will feel free to provide comments uh, on this, make their own suggestions, or feel free to ask questions. Indeed. So thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. It was fun. 
Thank you for joining today's Behind the Bullseye podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share it with your colleagues and friends. For additional episodes and resources, visit us at frombehindthebullseye.com.